come to lecture today about, we're continuing our series, of course, in the solidarity, uh, or rather, of the Baptist distinctives. <clears throat> and we are now, have finally arrived. I've covered a great deal of general material bringing, leading us up to the actual study of the distinctives, uh, to those distinctives. And we are there now. We have arrived there and we are studying first and foremost that which is primary. We are taking up that Baptist distinctive which we, I have called the solidarity of the scriptures. Uh, beautiful word picture. I don't know. Let me see. Uh, I meant to put it in the bulletin. Yes, I did. Uh, John L. Dagg, there was a quote, I put it on the back of the bulletin, talking about the scriptures. He said, here are waters in which an infant may wade and an elephant may swim freely. The scriptures. We'll take up today where Brother Gormley left us off on last week. He pointed out at the end of the lecture that our Baptist confession of faith starts here. And he pointed out the fact that none of the others of that era, the Savoy, the Westminster, none of them start here. The Baptist confession of faith starts here. With the sentence, the Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. And with that declarative sentence, right at the first line of our confession, that leaves us to know that everything else that remains in the teachings of the Baptist Confession will adhere to that principle. It will be governed by what the Scriptures say. Luke is writing <clears throat> something of a commentary on the Baptist Confession. And he shared with me uh, some of what he had written about that sentence. And uh, I wanted you to hear it as well in this uh, chapter 1, paragraph 1. He says in this chapter, talking about that chapter of the Baptist Confession of Faith, the wisdom of the divines who drafted these words is explicit. Early confessions and creeds often began by treating the subject of God and his attributes and addressing the issue of the scripture later, if at all. Of course, to know God at all requires revelation. To know Christ requires special revelation. Further, to express truths about God requires that the source for such expressions be named. Thus, the matters of revelation were placed at the head of all others in our confession as much as to say, these are things we believe about God and about his Christ, and this, that is the scripture, is our basis for believing them. The word is how we know them. The word is the foundational and ultimate authority in all the matters that follow. 
Chapter 1 is presuppositional in that it puts a finger on the need for Bible faith in assessing matters of Bible faith. That is to say, we are confronted immediately at the outset with the singular fact that to express any views about God deduced from Scripture, as those are that are contained in the confession, requires that one presuppose that God has revealed truths about himself and that we can know them and that the Bible is the place where they are contained. All this because the Bible says so. <laughs> Naturally, along with this is the fundamental belief that God exists, but then so many people have a belief in some idea of God. The question is, can we know Truly, can he be known truly and known personally? The answer, divine answers are, yes, there is a God, but to di differentiate the God from your ideas of God, we declare that the God, that the God may be known having revealed himself to man and that he has done so in the Bible. This is at the very heart of the minister's task, the parent's task. The teacher's task, the apologist's task, the basic presuppositions that God may be known and that he has revealed himself in Scripture in order to that end. That, says Luke, is the basic presupposition for every one in a place of instruction. So the divines are guilty here. Oh, well, I'm sorry. I did want to give you the last sentence. Uh, I submit that for a person to build theology on any other than this foundation, the centrality of the Bible as the divine revelation of a personal God, or to formulate his defense of Christianity on any other than this presupposition, is dishonoring to God and intellectually suicidal. Now, of course, he takes up the fact that that seems to be begging the question. We say what the scripture says about its solidarity, its supremacy is true because the scripture says it. He says, so, uh, so are the divines guilty here of begging the question? Are they guilty of circular reasoning? which says that such and such is true about God because God's word says so. And the word in his and the word in his word because it says so. The answer is yes. And in doing so, they fulfill the requirements of the rational expression about any ultimate authority. It is actually irrational to attempt to not reason in this circular way. It is irrational because it is, in fact, impossible for anyone to argue anything about ultimate truths or ultimate realities without assuming first some presupposition or set of presuppositions that together form their ultimate authority. The simple fact is we have absolute and complete confidence in the scriptures. They are what they say they are, and yes, that is our presupposition. 
We hold that by faith. And that, not of ourselves, it's the gift of God. <laughs> we have that faith by gift from God. That faith enables us to believe. And if one is an unbeliever, it's because they do not have that faith. And then he goes on and deals at length with that topic. Uh, well worth reading. Uh, you can get a copy of that, I suppose, from Luke. And uh, finish reading his treatment of that, of that argument. Dag, in his theology... I can find the place. Uh, J.L. Day in his Manual of Theology and Church Order. <clears throat> I showed that picture to Emmerich this morning. He said he looks scary. He does indeed. Dag said this <clears throat> in his first chapter dealing with the source of knowledge. Dag says, A full conviction that the Bible is the Word of God is necessary to give us confidence in its teaching and respect for its decisions. With this conviction pervading the mind, when we read the sacred pages, we realize that God is speaking to us and when we feel the truth take hold of our hearts, we know that it is God with whom we have to do. When we study its precepts, all our powers bow to them as the undoubted will of our sovereign Lord. And when we are cheered and sustained by its consolations, we receive them as blessings poured down from the eternal throne. Nature and science offer no light that can guide us in our search for immortal bliss. But God has given us the Bible. As a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, let us receive the gift with gratitude and commit ourselves to its guidance. That single line, there couldn't be uh, a better introduction, if you please, to our this study, or especially to this to, to this first Baptist distinctive, the, the scriptures, the authority of the scriptures, this is a great statement to be written over that study. Let us receive the gift with gratitude and commit ourselves to its guidance. Well said. Now. The subject, of course, of inspiration, divine inspiration, of necessity comes into this conversation of uh, the Baptist distinctives. But now, you, you understand, I hope, that the doctrine of divine inspiration, as it stands in any and all orthodox evangelical statement, theology, textbooks, doctrinal statements, confessions, whatever, that the doctrine of inspiration itself is not 
unique only to Baptists. That is not, that is not a Baptist only distinctive. That is holding to the verbal plenary inspiration of the scriptures. All evangelical in the proper sense, theological sense of the word, all evangelical uh, churches and doctrines uh, hold to uh, this this fundamental uh, doctrine of verbal plenary inspiration of the scripture. So I as as I said, the subject of the Bible's divine inspiration of necessity comes into this conversation. But it is not unique to Baptists, that is, the doctrine of inspiration is not unique to Baptists. But we do believe, and of course, well, I won't read for sake of time because you have it and you have studied Those who may get this by way of internet haven't studied it. Uh, if you have not studied that doctrine of divine inspiration of the scriptures, certainly you should. And our Baptist confession of faith is more than adequate to at least inform you on the basic understanding of divine inspiration. It was in the literal translation, of course, God breathed. And we believe that the scriptures, as we have them, in their original tongues, were breathed of God so that every single word was from God and not one word was left out that God would have to be said. That is very brief summary of the doctrine of inspiration. Now, Crawl in his uh, uh, church member's manual, which is one of the two textbooks I have recommended you for this course, Crawl offers... Uh, and, I, and I'm putting this word in quotes because I, ha I have mixed thoughts on it. But Kroll offers proofs of the authenticity of the scriptures. Now, he's not alone in that. Most all theology textbooks, not just Baptist, all theology textbooks that are orthodox, that have come down, that are at least orthodox evangelical, Uh, take up this same subject. Uh, some of them are quite elaborate. Some of them go very extensive uh, in their treatment. I looked back through a whole shelf full of theology books of my own from different denominations at different ages. And either to a very small extent or to a very large extent, somewhere along the way in the subject under the subject of divine inspiration, uh, they typically take up this matter of proofs. And again, I put that in quotes. Proofs of the authenticity and of the divine origin of the scriptures. So it is not a subject uh, that uh, is not sound theologically. 
Uh, I think it can be scary. I, I reviewed all of those theology textbooks. Some of them get, uh, I think, out into some very uh, scary waters. I'm not real sure that some of their so-called proofs can be stood on firmly, and so I'm not doing that. But Crowell does in his book, and I don't even support all of his so-called proofs. But I will give you some of what Crowell says just so that you have a sampling and you know that there is this matter of, of genuine proofs that what we have here is not of human origin. It is divine. It is the authority of the Scripture. It is God-breathed. This is the Word of God. And we believe that. We believe that fully. That is a foundational tenet, a foundational distinctive of Baptists that we hold no other authority but this book. So Crawl, in his treatment of church manual, he deals somewhat with these proofs. Let me give you some of them. I give you first of all on page 124. He said, it is not unreasonable to believe that God would give a revelation of his will to men. It's not unreasonable. This is one of his evidences. He says it's not unreasonable to believe it. He says it is reasonable to believe that God would cause this revelation to be committed to writing. So he's appealing to reason, properly so-called reason, human reason, rationale, as a proof of the Scripture's divine origin. He says that he, that he can communicate the instructions which he designs to properly uh, promote among men to the mind of a man so that it shall be recorded in the words which the Holy Ghost teacheth, is as reasonable to believe as that he first created the human mind and gave to men the power of conception, of memory, and of expression. As it could not be transmitted from place to place or from age to age without being written, we should expect that it would be committed to writing together with the proofs of its divine origin. So he's saying that we have a written revelation is reasonable. In fact, he says, it's unreasonable to believe that he would not because we are rational creatures. And so he appeals to man in his mind. Well, those thoughts, those appeals, must be conveyed not only from place to place, but from age to age. And so it's reasonable to believe that he would have them written. And so he sees that as an evidence or proof of divine origin. Secondly, number two, he says, the excellence of the scriptures the great superiority of their moral precepts, the purity and elevation of their doctrines, 
The perfect harmony of the writers, though they wrote without concert and in different ages and different places and with great variety of style, all of that together, their powerful and continually increasing influence to check sin, to promote holiness in men, to purify society, to increase intelligence, to sustain justice, benevolence, and public spirit, in short, to promote every interest dear to men in this present world, or cheering to their prospects in the world to come, proves that the scriptures are not the forgeries of men, but are a revelation from God. In other words, the summation of all of that is this. It's simply not humanly possible that mere men could have produced this book. It just simply is not possible that were there no divine supervision of this matter and uh, and control of it, it's not possible for men to do it. The power of it, the effect of it, its influence and power, and its continuity, its consistency, in the midst of so much variety of time and place and style, it is not possible that man could have done that. Dag, in another place, along the same subject. Well, let me conclude uh, Kroll's comment on page. He goes on. Oh, just a second. Let me make sure I'm right place on my notes. Yes, he concludes the topic. But let me give you Dag's comment first. I'm sorry. Let me. Yeah, I'll conclude it. Let me conclude the comments from Crawl uh, first. Uh, on page 127, Crawl says this. Of course, he has other. Uh, there are other proofs. Uh, I didn't. I didn't read them all. I told you I wouldn't read them all. Uh, one is he. He uh, delineation. He he delineates. Uh, he says the four gospels delineate a perfect. Sinless character for different writers from his own point of view describing Jesus Christ as a man who made no mistake, committed no fault, accomplished all the, that he undertook. And then he says that no such being had ever appeared on the earth before and no one has appeared since. And yet we have four evangelists who have presented the character of Jesus Christ truly They've invented, they've either, uh, either they did present the character of Christ truly or they have invented a fictitious one with the intention to deceive. But it is impossible. Listen now, here's his, I think this is the main point of this proof. He says it is impossible for imperfect men to invent a perfect character. In other words, the gospel record of Jesus Christ 
It is not possible that apart from divine inspiration that such a life story could have ever been written. It just is not possible. But the character of Jesus Christ, delineated by the evangelist, is either a true and real one, or it's a forgery, perpetrated with a base and dishonest intention to deceive. Reason and common sense pronounce this to be impossible. The character of Christ, as it is exhibited in those Gospels, is alone a sufficient proof of the truth of the description given unless we can believe it's so manifest an absurdity that dishonest men with dishonest intentions would invent such a thing. It is not possible. He says the character and person of Christ recorded in those four Gospels is not a story that could have been written by men, by imperfect sinful men. Dag comments on that as well. He says, is it possible that the sacred personage whom history, who, uh, whose history it contains should be himself a mere man? Do we find that he assumed the air of an enthusiast or an ambitious sectary? What sweetness or what purity is in his manner? manner? What an affecting gracefulness is in his delivery. What sublimity is in his maxims. What profound wisdom is in his discourses. What presence of mind. What subtlety. What truth in his replies. How great the command over his passions. Where is the man? Where is the philosopher who could so live and die without weakness and without ostentation? Shall we suppose the evangelistic history to be a fiction? Indeed, my friend, it bears not the marks of fiction. On the contrary, the history of Socrates, which nobody presumes to doubt, is not so well attested as the history of Jesus Christ. The Jewish authors were incapable of diction and strangers to the morality contained in the gospel. The marks of whose truth are so striking and invincible that the inventor would be a more astonishing character than the hero. I thought it was a great statement. You understand what he's saying? If this was written by mere man, if this was written by mere man and was not inspired of God, then he says this story would be so striking that the inventor of the story would be more astonishing than the character he wrote about if it was false, if it was a trickery. But it was not. It's the truth. So the point of that proof is simply that the four Gospels, the four Gospels alone, are stand as a proof of the divine origin of these scriptures. Then he gives another. He says the fulfillment of the prophecies proves the scriptures to be inspired. And of course almost all theology books that I looked at, they all use this one. That is the fulfillment of prophecy. Who could have predicted something in intricate detail 
and 2,000 years later that unfold with specificity exactly as the details of the prophecy. The fulfillment of prophecy proves the scriptures to be inspired. Many of them foretold events the most improbable at the time they were written, which have since received an exact and wonderful fulfillment. Those which relate to the posterity of Esau and Jacob, to the condition of the Jews, to Nineveh, to Babylon, to Tyre, to Egypt, to the four great empires of the world, to the time of Christ's appearance, and many others form a most unexceptionable and convincing proof through every age that the prophets wrote the unerring words of the Most High. They had to be inspired. And the fulfillment of prophecy that we already know is a proof of their verbal inspiration. We conclude that discussion with the words again of Kroll in his manual for church. He says these passages, and he has just related several scriptures. He said these passages are but specimens of the testimony which the scriptures uniformly bear to the great truth that they are from God. By inspiration, therefore, is not meant that all the persons whose words and actions are recorded in the Bible were inspired when they did and said those things, nor that their conduct was right because it's recorded in the Scriptures. But it's proved that the men who wrote the Scriptures were so instructed, moved, guided, and restrained by the Spirit of God that they recorded truly and correctly those things which ought to be recorded and nothing more. They are free from the least error or omission. The inspired writers wrote the very words and all the words which God intended they should write in the sacred scriptures and no others. They ought therefore, and here's here's Kroll giving us a statement almost identical to what Dag gave in his textbook. They ought therefore to be received as the perfect, infallible words of God to be interpreted according to the laws of language and every truth which they reveal, every doctrine they teach, every positive institution they enjoin, every duty which they inculcate ought to be implicitly believed and obeyed. Period. Period. And by the way, when people say there's error in the scriptures, we don't take up this. This is a little bit down a sidetrack. But through the years, especially in jail work, your people say, oh, what about the you know, errors in the Bible? I just always say, show me one. Just, just show me one. I've never had anyone take that up. I've never had anyone. 
attempt that. Well, you know, it's a, well, you know, it's such a whole thing about, uh, I say, oh, uh, well, show me one. Just show me one. <laughs> there is no error. Divine inspiration of the scriptures. Now, as I say, that's something of a, that, that topic has to come into this discussion of the, and so I gave it a little bit of time in this lecture, uh, and this subject of the Baptist giving supremacy to the scriptures. That is, that is, that it is our sole and final authority on all matters of faith and practice. That is a Baptist distinction. We'll take up again on next week and uh, say a bit more along these lines. Until then, do you have any comment or question or anything anyone would like to add? You can see Luke about getting copies of I didn't read all of his uh, treatment of that subject. It's excellent. Uh, you can see look for a copy of that if you're interested in it. Any other questions, comments? Okay. We'll certainly do that.
will gain more light on as it goes. Mm -hmm. That light's not always shot with the purest possible. Mm -hmm. This is one of those areas where the Lord has given increased lights maybe help us to speak a bit more carefully about Yes, yes. Progressive illumination, which is not to be confused with progressive inspiration. Well, I didn't read number nine. <laughs> I skipped some of these, some of these, because as I said to begin with, I think some of these are on shaky ground. And I get where he's coming from. And of course, you know, I have no intention to underline the scripture. Mm -hmm. But I think that we are Baptists, so we're not responsible for Presbyterians or Anglicans or Protestant Episcopals. Think that we should be intellectual, honest in the way that we haven't always been. And all of you should be. That's all I'm always just a little bit leery anytime I start to read or take up the subject of proofs of the Scripture's inspiration. Because we all know that in the end of the day, the only real, quote, proof, if we could use that word, is that that is birthed in our hearts by faith. There is no external proof. These, I would prefer to call these things indicators. They indicate their internal evidences of its inspiration clearly indicators, but the only real proof, that's that word proof that I choke on, the only real proof is that that's birthed in the heart by faith. That's the only proof we have. But we do have many and varied external evidences and internal evidences that indicate its divine origin. I think that goes without saying. And it's a fun subject to study. I'm not going deeply into it here because it is not in the mainstream of my purposes. But 
it is a it is a wonderful subject to study. Uh, different men's what they have said about the proofs of the divine origin of the scriptures. The the I think the most I think the most powerful to my heart of the whole thing uh, is is summarized in in the simple lesson. No, no man could have made this up. <laughs> no one man could have made this up at one point in time. But to, but to realize that it is inscripturated over thousands of years and comes to this place it, it is powerful. <laughs> that is powerful. How, how, who could have an explanation for that outside this explanation of divine origin, divine inspiration? Nothing else can count this record. Nothing. To me, that's a very powerful external evidence of divine inspiration. Right, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, the Bible itself is a proof. The existence of the Bible as we have it is, is a phenomenal proof. It is an argument that can't be answered. It's an evidence. It's an evidence. Yes, evidence. Distinct possibility 
probability that the gravity of that darkness may yet pull us back into itself. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Suck us in. Yeah. It is a solemn contemplation that ought to press upon all of our hearts where we are now. Right. And right. Where we may be soon. Yeah. In yep. regards to Christianity. Yeah. Mm hmm. Hmm. Well, it is a subject that we will continue to pursue. This we're not gonna we're not gonna rush through this first distinctive. As Luke said, it's foundational to everything. Everything else hinges on it. And so we'll not be rushing through it. 